You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple again. Normally I would say this is the podcast where we Hence, make data simple, and that's what we talk about. We talk about journey to cloud, journey to AI, but I think we've proven that we talk about whatever comes to mind, <laughs> which is all good. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, let us know. Please give us feedback on almartintalksdata at gmail.com. We do listen, and we will make changes accordingly. Today, I have two distinguished guests. One is Adam Cutler, and we also have Melinda Prebich. And... Adam Cutler, if I could, I'm going to try to do my best to, to introduce these folks. Very, um, very distinguished guests, like I said. Uh, Adam is a distinguished designer for AI design and cognitive enterprise in, in what's called IBM's design program office. And Melena is an advisory designer, AI design practices with IBM's design program office. So I don't know what the deal is, but we keep getting designers in here. <laughs> you you can see what happened where IBM has made a transformation, and we'll talk about that in a bit, where design is very critical to, you know, both software, hardware, everything in between uh, in terms of um, how we're trying to drive the client experience and our products in the market. So, Adam, uh, give you a, a little bit more background on Adam, if I could. I know you got a good tech talk on out there. Congrats. That was, that was well done. Uh, and, and I'm going to talk to this in a bit, but for the listeners out there, I saw that you recently wrote, uh, that for the past three years, this is you talking, my team and I have been researching and creating a formal approach to, to designing AI solutions that are intent focused rather than tech tech led. So we're going to talk what, what, what that means in a moment, hang tight. Uh, I know that you to be a founding member of IBM design. I want to talk about that. And I think if my... Uh, if my research is correct, you had or created the design studio in Austin, Texas, for which I've been there. Nicely done. Thank you. And, and then, Melena, um, the one thing that you wrote that I thought was interesting that I want to drive uh, drill down on is you said defining what it means to design for artificial intelligence as IBM as a researcher, designer and advocate, establishing best practices for ethical and empathetic AI. So I'm really interested in the, this is a hot topic right now, the ethical and empathetic empathetic piece of, of AI. But uh, I also know you to be a product designer for Watson Education. Um, and I know you collect metrics on conversational prototypes, et cetera. I want to understand what those are. I think I know our listeners would be interesting, interested. And uh, I also, when I was doing a little research on you on LinkedIn, et cetera, I know this is a new web page that we'll put in the show notes of IBM Design for AI that uh, we can we can point you to so you can, everybody can get more information. So let me pause there. Uh, welcome to the show. I got to give you the proper introductions. You guys are, are so well qualified that it takes a while. But um, let me let you introduce yourself uh, so I could be I'll try to be polite and, and give you some time here. Adam, I, I'd like you to talk about your, a little bit about yourself. Uh, what your passions are, what your role is today. Melinda will do the same and then we'll jump in. 
Okay. Um, so I'm Adam Cutler. Uh, I have been at IBM for 18 years now. Uh, I'll be on 19 come this March. I started uh, as an information architect in what is now known as IBM IX, which is our client-facing practice uh, for design. And I've been a tireless advocate for design uh, inside and outside of the company um, for as long as I've been here. And when Phil Gilbert was named general manager of design back in 2012, he asked me to move down from Boston down here to Austin uh, and to be designer number one as a part of this program and to kickstart the education program, create the original design language, uh, work on IBM design thinking as it was called at the time and to do the physical space design here at the studio. Um, and we grew so fast and there was so much there that I quickly ramped up a team and started to shed off some of my responsibilities so that I could spend more time focusing uh, deeply on the practices that we produce out of the design program office. Uh, and that led to me uh, co-creating the loop, which is the main mental model as a part of enterprise design thinking. And shortly after that, I was asked to put my distinguished designer package together. Uh, and uh, I was appointed as one of the first three distinguished designers in the company uh, that year, which was, I guess, 2015. And the mission I was asked to undertake as a part of that appointment was to figure out what it meant to, or what it means to design for artificial intelligence, full stop. So it isn't just about Watson, it's about what does it mean to be a designer in the era of AI and how does that change what we do as designers and what do we need to create that doesn't exist or didn't exist when, when I first started. Um, so I shed my team of 20 people uh, and for a year went completely solo just trying to get my arms around as much of the field as I could um, coming from a place of relative ignorance on the subject. Like I knew enough to be really dangerous, but not enough to be smart and dangerous. So um, I formed a small team of uh, three people, including myself. Um, and Milena came and joined the team, I think about a year and a half into the, into the effort. And um and from there, we've created um, guides and guidance on the basics of designing for artificial intelligence, which is found in our team essentials for AI within enterprise design thinking. Um, we've given guidance on how to design for conversation, as well as um, our book on uh, ethics, which is called Everyday Ethics for Artificial Intelligence, which is one of four main uh outward facing statements on uh, AI ethics from the IBM corporation. Uh, great. I'm actually taking notes. We can come back to some of this. Thank you. Anything <laughs> else we miss before I go to Melina? Um, I'm sure there is, but let's go on. <laughs> All <Melina>. right. <laughs> Melina, I'll let you introduce yourself, please. So I'm Milena Pivic, and I work on Adam's team now. I'm focused on AI design practices where we're pretty much working with all of our awesome designers and developers across the company to see um, the practices and considerations they're taking when designing for AI. I've been at IBM for four years now. I started as a front-end developer and pivoted to design. I did a bunch of user experience on different Watson products. And now on this team, I'm pretty much focused on ethical AI and looking at the different 
problems and issues that might be coming up on teams that are working with AI um, and having to deal with certain ethical considerations. Nice. I do want to jump into that. So before I do that, though, uh, thank you. Uh, I have this friend. I, call, I use the fr term friend very loosely. Let's just call him Scott. And <laughs> he says that sometimes this this podcast is too technical. Uh, now, he's not in the in, in the business. And I got many in the business say it's not technical enough. So that tells me it's about right uh, when you got both sides. But tell me this. Um, look, I've had, I don't know, five or six designers on. I mean, it's a massive uh, surge. I don't know what I want to call it, of design at IBM. Uh, two questions. What the heck is, quote unquote, design in your mind in this case? And why the hell can't we make software and hardware without design these days? And, and thirdly, I'm going to ask you a third one then. See if you can get all these through. It, you know, a lot of this, this, this transformation we're talking about did happen in 2012. Uh, and you've been here, I think, Adam, I remember you say it 18 years, 19 years. I don't remember. Somewhere in there. Yeah. The, that mean we weren't doing design before 2012? I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me see if I can do this as succinctly as possible. So design is the purpose, planning, or intent behind an action factor material object. It's not about color choices, font choices, Photoshop, lining things up on a grid. It is about that purpose, planning, or intent. So when we talk about design, it is about making sure that we're not just creating technology for technology's sake, and we're not using technology for technology's sake, but we're doing it uh, with a specific end in mind, which is to help a human solve a problem that they have and do that as elegantly and as smartly as possible so as to let them do their job without having to worry about how they're doing their job. They're just doing their job. So. I think that answers your second question, which is like, do we need, you know, do we need design in our hardware and software? And, and the answer is absolutely. Um, maybe the best metaphor or analogy to use for this is it would be like saying uh, you wanted to build an addition onto your house. So you just go to Home Depot and you randomly start buying piles of lumber and piping and, you know, glue and hammers and nails and just start wildly banging away if you don't have an architect who plans for what that addition is going to be used for and what the conditions are and what you need to be thinking about way in advance of starting to build anything, you're probably going to end up with a mess. And I don't think there's any, anybody listening to this who hasn't had some sort of experience where you can tell that people were thinking about the business process, the technology, or some end business result instead of what somebody needed to get their problem solved. We, I mean, we our, our phones are littered with apps that do that to us. Our laptops are littered with apps that do that to us, websites that do it to us. Um, we're trying to make it so that um, that goes by the wayside, that we're designing these things for people, by people, for people. And before 2012? Um. No, we've been doing design. It's a matter of how many people you have to do design. I think when we started the program for at least within um, within the product teams, you know, within the software uh, groups, uh, I think the average was one designer to 35 engineers. And the goal has been to reduce that to one to eight as much as possible. So 
Um, it's not that we weren't designing our products before. It's that now we have people who are uh, trained specifically in, in, in design who are bringing their talents uh, to this as opposed to people who uh, were performing a design role who may not have been formally trained as designers. So, you know, you know, one thing I have to admit in your analogy there, I do exactly as you describe. I go to Home <laughs> Depot and I get everything that I think I need. I come home, throw it in the floor on the floor and say, all right, <laughs> now I got to do something or else this stuff's going to be laying around forever. I'm right. seriously, that's how I start my project. And then I take half of it back. Uh, there's a flaw in my design process, obviously. <laughs> so, Melinda, I'm going to ask you the, the question in an opposite way. So then what happens? What does software and hardware look like without design? Well, what would it be? Well, you know, the, the whole purpose of thinking about design from the outset would be to align on why you're creating what you're creating. So ultimately, it wouldn't serve the right purpose because... If you haven't thought about user from the beginning, you haven't thought about the experience and made it engaging, then you're going to have problems with actually people wanting to use what you've created and realizing that by skipping that part, you've left a lot sort of on the floor. So, so I know a lot of developers. In fact, I happen to be one of those pesky developers. Do you consider design also a process or a governance to keep them in line and just not... Uh, you know, being the next uh, cowboy, cowgirl, creating the next uh, fun feature uh, versus, I mean, you're, you're governing that so that we stay aligned and we're targeting the client experience. Do you see that as part of the role? I, I wouldn't say that. I don't, I don't think no. it's a, it's not a matter of keeping people in line or telling them what to do. It's that it's about getting everybody aligned that oftentimes you're presented a problem that needs to be solved and uh, people who are tech oriented are thinking about very specific tasks that they need to get done. And designers are thinking about the people that they're designing it for, and they may not be necessarily thinking about how it's going to get done, but what needs to be done. And if that doesn't get addressed right at the outset through some form of design artifacts, everybody goes off and does their own thing. And that's when you end up with disjointed experiences or buttons or uh, copy that doesn't make sense uh, or uh, navigation flows where you're moving through something and you're like, how, how did I get here and how the hell do I get back to where I came from? Yeah. And again, these are things that we experience on a regular basis. It just helps to know how things end up like that versus, um, you know, what we all deem to be um, a little more user friendly or, or, or pleasant or engaging. Yes, but Adam, you got to admit, and I know you probably don't like to call it at this, there's got to be some policing in there to get the, you know, the developer, the, the, the process, whatever you want to call the practice, the, the release back in line, because you, you know it goes off the rails and everything you described as we start creating a feature. And look, a lot of them, including myself, you know, if I was developing something, you know, I forget about the, the navigation that goes along with it. I'm trying to get this feature done. And we do need some of that policing. So I got to believe there's some policing in there someplace where you raise your hand and say, look, guys, we're off the rails here. Uh, we've got to get back on the rails or this experience is going to be atrocious. Well, there's a few things there. So one is from a, a design and design thinking framework perspective, we are anti-feature. We're more about... What, what's the goal? What's the outcome that we're trying to enable for a human 
to be able to complete uh, or move past. Um, so it's it's not about creating features, which if if you start with creating features, that's how you end up in that situation that you are describing. And then second is, as a part of enterprise design thinking, we have what we call keys. And um, two of these keys um, really factor in hard with what you're saying. So the first one is this idea of hills, which are three and only three uh, statements that are user focused, user outcome focused, that the entire team agrees upon, and that when they shift from um, like a design thinking first mentality to an agile first mentality, these three hills are how we gauge whether or not our sprints are ending up where they need to end up when you're in an agile process. And then the second is uh, this construct called playbacks. Um, and there are informal and formal playbacks, but these are um, hierarchy-free um, critiques in which design work and engineering work is shown off uh, so that you can understand uh, what we're shooting for before we actually get into the building. And then once it's being built, that we can actually say and agree this is all heading in the right direction. And typically you'll have senior executives on the major playbacks so that they're in the loop as far as this is concerned. So with this regular playback cadence, um, we never have to, uh, I don't think we find ourselves in a situation where we have to raise our hand and say, this is off the rails. The playbacks are there to make sure that if we did wander off a little bit, that there's a path for us to get back onto. And that if things are going the right way, that we have the path forward in terms of what comes next after we've deemed that a success. And I would push back right. against the term, I guess, policing, because this system, <laughs> this way of working is mutually beneficial. It's not about curbing one group or the other. Oh, very good. Very good. I think you that's a great explanation of de design. So Scott, if you're listening right now, along with eight to 10,000 other people, I hope you're satisfied. If you didn't get that explanation, we've got deeper problems we need to investigate. All right. So that's good. Melinda, I want to I want to move on to, um, it, you know, well, I got several questions, but I want to talk about this ethical and empathetic AI. I think, you know, from my standpoint, it is a huge I don't want to call, I don't know if it's a dilemma or, or what you call it, but it's a, it's a huge challenge right now, whatever. And in fact, I just had John Cohen on our, I don't know, you guys know John, the mad yep. scientist? Yeah. Yes. So I had him on uh, an episode and I tried to track him, uh, trap him. And we may do a little game at the end of this with you guys as well, where I call uh, underrated or overrated. And the long and short of it is, I said, you know, I, I said, does data science underrated and overrated? And I was expecting him to say underrated because everybody needs data science today. And then I was going to, and then I said, well, about the, the humanities underrated or overrated uh, because I was trying to trap him because my point is, is you say, hey, data science is underrated. And then you go into the humanities. If that's underrated as well, how do you balance, you know, a lot of kids are wanting to take data science and they're not taking the humanities or vice versa. And the humanities, where I'm going with this is they're so important because that deals with ethics. Uh, that deals with bias that, you know, we're getting into this, you know, AI where we're, we're, we're venturing into areas that we've never been in before. And again, it goes back to that empathy and ethics, et cetera. He answered it extremely well because he said, data science is overrated. We've had it forever. We're just now getting to it. 
uh, from a uh, an AI and with the the compute and storage that prices have plummeted. So it's just a good inflection point. And the humanities, he says, is underrated, and we totally agree. So anyway, I hope I hope you're following along here. Point is, is that how do we handle? So I got the expert here, Melinda. You're the expert. <laughs> I've just designated you. It, that the ethical and empathetic pieces of AI. What do you see as the current state? What do you think we see as the desired state? What problems are we up against, and how do we address them? Well, currently, where I can speak for us and where we're at, um, we started started work specifically on AI ethics last year. Uh, for the most part, um, our team. Um, with the release of our Everyday Ethics for AI document that we did with Francesca Rossi, who is our global AI ethics ambassador. And that came about in a natural way where we did have folks on teams that were asking themselves certain questions around um, you know, data privacy or working to mitigate bias and questions like that, um, that our first push and the share out of, docu- of that document was a lot about just making people aware of the need for AI ethics. Um, right now, we're still solidly in that phase, but our team is moving more towards now seeing you know, the specific practices and design choices that teams working with AI are making to address some of those needs that we've already you know, said or explained are important. So. Um, we're in this sort of exploration phase where we're sort of organically just working with teams and seeing uh, the problems that they're coming up with or um, certain areas that they're dealing with where we can kind of go and find other teams that might be working with similar problems or similar issues and, you know, pulling them together, seeing what works and what might not and how we can sort of share notes across experiences. So this may seem uh, self-explanatory, but why do we need AI ethics? I mean, you know, we trust everybody to do their job, et cetera, you know, everywhere else. Why is it so important to have, quote unquote, AI e- ethics? What happens if we don't have it? What's the risk? And what well, do they specifically look like? What's the guidance there look like? I mean, how do you implement AI ethics? Yeah, um, that's a loaded question, implementing AI ethics. (laughs) That's what I do is loaded questions. We do, yeah, we do have obviously different different types of pushes and movements around how to do that, whether it's from research or the development side or the data science science side or what we're doing with the UI as far as explainability. Um, We can trust people to do their jobs, but ultimately building that trust is a long-term effort and a goal of ours. And we're talking about long-term trust and everything that we put into a solid relationship with our users uh, that's built on purpose, value, and trust like any other relationship is. So building that trust is an ongoing thing. It's not something that comes out of the box. Um, So the importance of AI ethics specifically is because the implications of AI, um, AI touches, has the potential to touch every aspect of our lives. There's certain effects of AI or things that we might not be thinking about. Um, When we're creating a product for a specific reason, we might not be thinking about tertiary effects of that. Uh, This sort of learning and understanding and having these practices in place, these ethical practices in place, uh, serves to mitigate that and have us thinking about it from the outset so that we can actually know what we're doing when we're talking about our users trusting us and we know what questions sort of to be answering before they need to be asked in a lot of, in a, 
lot of areas. Let me let me jump on that too because it goes back to the Home Depot analogy that we were talking about. Is um, a lot of people are using the technology that's out there that's either open source or freely available. And they're more focused on trying to make the technology work and make it work the way that they want it to without thinking about the ramifications or the consequences of what they're building. And what's different about this, uh, specifically around AI, is that these systems are not programmed, they're taught. And so if we are bringing into a second intelligent species on Earth, it is our responsibility, even at this early point in the technology to be thinking more deeply about what it is that we're creating and why we're creating it, because this isn't just another technology at this point. And sure, if it's machine learning, I think it's a little easier to classify it that way because there's less intelligence in that. It's it's more about applying, uh, you know, uh, a lot of sifting and machine learning or, you know, uh, algorithms to mountains of data but when we start getting into simulated human thought processes there's we have to have more responsibility than just we're trying to make the technology work ultimately it's like pushing back against that features first mindset that you were talking about earlier earlier yeah so but is there a difference between you mentioned best practices for ethical and empathetic ai is there a difference between ethical and empathetic um in some cases there is uh, in terms of how how granular I guess you're defining them but when I was when I spoke to empathetic AI I was um, speaking to my experience working with a tutor on Watson education where mm-hmm. we were basically making the experience more engaging uh, and empathetic in order to create the specific relationship with the students that we were working with um, there is definitely overlap there which is actually how my work in AI ethics sort of started where I realized that overlap with um, using empathetic AI and uh, pushing AI ethics into it or being aware of certain things that um, when we were creating that relationship or designing that relationship that we'd want to think about as we were pushing in, you know, different ways of being engaging and why we were doing so. I think it's important to note too that when we talk about empathic AI at this point, it's more facade than it is true empathy. Like the machine can't feel and it doesn't have emotional response. Therefore, it can't truly empathize with us, but through the design of how the AI is capable of interacting with a human, we as designers and developers can imbue a sense of empathy that the user picks up on, but it's it's not true machine empathy. The machine doesn't feel for us or with us. So, I think we're sort of in a baby step era there, but it, it it goes back to what I think Milena and I are both saying, which is uh, if we don't start thinking proactively about this stuff now, when machines eventually do have more capacity to either read our emotions or respond um, in kind with an emotional response that we need to be thinking about what, when, why, and how that all occurs. Well, the reality is, to, I, I understand and I agree with you. I, I, I ask these leading thought. I, I try to ask these provoking questions, but uh, and let you guys answer the questions. But you know, we're kind of uh, we're already at that spot where they can predict our emotions in some sense. I mean, because we can we can look at facial features, facial recognition, and you can tell if somebody's angry, sad, um, 
you know, uh, happy, whatever, and make decisions uh, accordingly. Uh, so from that standpoint, it, it's, it's, it's getting a bit scary. And the reason I mentioned humanities earlier is because I think there, especially as we, the further we get into AI, and, and it's here to stay, and it's going to, you know, I, I truly believe, believe it's the transformation of our time. But there's an element of psychology, human understanding, et cetera. Since I have been, you know, I've been really, I've only been in the, the, the AI sector driving development for like a year now. And I have learned more about, you know, how much bias we as humans really have than I ever thought imaginable. I mean, it's, you know that we all have biases, but man, when you start looking at it, uh, like, you know, I often refer to what's called the default bias. We don't have unlimited compute and storage, meaning if we've seen a problem before, we'll make the, we'll, we'll make the same solution that we did or we'll, we'll provide the same solution we did previously, even if it's close, because, hey, we've already seen that before. We're going to make that decision because we make 35,000 decisions a day and we're just going to move on. And, and one example I often give if I'm if if I'm really motivated is I'll be in a presentation, tell everybody to leave the room, come back in. They sit in the same exact seat, even if some got late and there could be a, a seat up front that's better. You know, there, I'm sure there's elements of being polite, et cetera. But point is, is they've already made that decision. I'm just going to sit in that seat. There's another uh, example on the undoing by the uh, book, The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, same guy that wrote Moneyball. It's about two, I guess you could call behavior uh, economists called uh, Dana Can Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And um, they say that we have a tendency to make decisions off of small sample sizes as if they re represent the large sample. And they have many examples in the book of, of biases, by, but there's so, so many. By example, and this is a silly one, and I'll probably but butcher it, they would, they would test people. And if they flipped a coin, you know, nine times out of 10 and nine, nine times it came up heads, uh, we would naturally believe one way or another that the next one is going to be, have a higher probability to be tails because we've already hit nine uh, heads. The reality is it's always 50-50. You could do it 99 times and the next one's going to be 50-50. The, the, the pr projection doesn't change. So all I'm saying is, tons of biases that we have to watch out for. But how does design, when you guys are in design, how do you guys, uh, how are you guys implementing best practices to ensure that uh, the developers, those that are creating the product, have those biases in mind uh, along the, the agile continuous delivery process? We have, um, in, our actual, in, in our everyday ethics guide, we actually do specifically um, talk about our unintentional biases. Um, part of what we think is the way to go about that is being as transparent as possible and open with each other when you're having these conversations about what your product is and what the purpose of your product is uh, around, you know, certain, we have, you know, certain exercises now in our, um, Team Essentials for AI course that we've just put up uh, where we're trying to get it so that people can start thinking about ethics rather than just slotting it in and thinking about, okay, let me go through this list of biases, make sure, you know, check off whichever one I might be dealing with and then getting back to their daily work. We're trying to make it so that it's more muscle memory. Um, when you're doing this sort of exercise and going through these questions with your team around 
what your pr product's prime purpose is, um, you're in a better spot as far as uh, actually staying on that ethical path that you've set out from aligning with your team initially. So like she meant, she mentioned it earlier too, is we have, we have a handful of different activities and exercises um, that slide in from a design thinking perspective. One of them is uh, what we call layers of effect. And so by thinking in advance of like, what's the primary use for what we're going to build? And then what are some of the things that might generate off of that first intent? what would those look like? And then maybe let's go a third layer deeper and let's think about like, what are all the ways that this might be misused or where would bias creep in or where could bias really skew the results? And by opening that as a discussion point early on, it gives um, the group a way to think about this, but it also starts to create a very discreet to-do list for certain individuals on the team, whether it is a designer or a data scientist or perhaps an offering manager, to then go do the deeper research about, you know, what is the provenance of the data? Has it been cleaned already? Um, you know, do we do we know uh, who is responsible for collecting, collating, uh, providing that data, and do they have any biases? Um, so I think part of it is more about the awareness because we can give you a hundred questions that you might want to ask. And we do, I think we give people about 15 to 20 questions, but the idea is that by asking those questions, it causes people to say, huh, you know, I never really thought of it. And if that's the case, then wouldn't this be an issue too? And then it gives the, the jumping off point for the team to start asking each other these questions instead of not giving them the time of day. And once that becomes routine and practice, it's the same way we were, our, it's the same as our perspective with design thinking, where that starts to just really change the fabric of the ideas that you're coming up with and the work that you're doing with your team. So let me ask you this. And, and again, I'm, I know we're running a little bit long here, but just a couple, just a couple more things. Sure. Um, the, you know, for the naysayers out there, I mean, we tend to be very open in our, um, uh, our models, whether it be design or now the 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 new setups, you know, the new floors tend to be very open, very collaborative. There's naysayers out that said, oh, you know, we've done this, you know, in the 70s, it's circular, it'll come back and, you know, we'll go back into offices later. It's too loud right now, you know, but that's what they want to do, whatever. What's your, what's your immediate response to that? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not a trend predictor. If anything, I'm more like a trendsetter, but I wouldn't describe myself like that either. <laughs> um, I'm not so concerned about where things evolve because, sure, you can, you can uh, affect uh, how things evolve. But honestly, one of the lessons I learned while designing the studio, I was working with steel cases. They were designing our whiteboard system for the seventh floor, and uh, they brought out their research and development fellows and they dropped some crazy science on me while I was out there. But one of the things I'll never forget is something that they wrote like a math equation on the whiteboard and it was behavior over time equals culture. And that's something that we've really run the studios with um, from the very beginning, which is you quietly encourage and discourage the behavior that you want to exist over time. And that becomes your culture. And the more that you hire into these workspaces, 
the culture either is accepted by people or if it's not accepted, the overarching body politic of the studio will try to adapt and change the behavior. So at the end of the day, I'm here to make sure that people have what they need to be the best designers that they can be. And, you know, if it ends up being, you know, three years from now that everybody goes back to cubes and walls, you know, so be it. I'll be a monkey's uncle if it does happen like that. But if that's the way it goes, <laughs> then that's the way it goes. I don't think this space is going to change much uh, any time soon. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anything else that you'd add on that, Melina? Or you pretty much agree or? I, I mean, I can just speak to my own experience and I just add to being able to collaborate since my whole job does revolve around doing just that and reaching out to people. It's a lot more, uh, more of like an inclusive setup in that people can just come up to my desk and there's no kind of scary <laughs> office walls. Uh, yeah, it works for me. I mean, it would be funny if we refuse to change or evolve in the future considering it was inherently meant to evolve with what people were asking for. Yeah. So if that changes and that changes and we change things up, but for now, I think everyone's pretty happy with it, at least in the studio. Look, I'd go on the record. I'm, I'm asked just asking questions because I'd go on the record and say, look, uh, we're by nature all, all want to be with other people. I mean, you know, we're, we're associative beings, if you will. I don't know. And uh, I think the collaborative, uh, environment is much, much better. Yeah, it's loud, but uh, I think that's almost what makes it great, right? You get to learn a lot of things. You get to associate with other yeah, people with, with like interests. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a balance. You know, we found we, when we first opened the studio, we made sure that there were plenty of spaces for teams uh, to have their engineers and developers come and sit with them. And uh, it wasn't that it was too loud for them. It was too kinetic. And so, they love to visit. They don't like to stay permanently, though. You know, it's too, too much movement, too many things happening all the time. Well, you know what? I used to, you know, some time ago I had an office. I, I, I'm this big, quote unquote, VP. I don't have an office. And it's interesting. <laughs> the first people say is they say, oh, how can you hold uh, private conversations? At the end of the day, yes, we, I do have a, an office I can go to for private conversations. But I don't once you get used to it, you don't do it that much. It's, yeah. it's amazing. You find that, you know, most of the stuff I'm, isn't that confidential, really. Uh, nope. and, you, and, then, and then you feel good being out in the open. People come up and talk to you more. You learn what's going on, uh, you know, at, at not so much the water cooler, because I'm not at the water cooler, but they'll stop by, ask me questions. That's what it's all about. So, look, I'm all in on this. So, today, is there anything, guys, we didn't get to that you guys desperately wanted to, to, to say and we didn't get an opportunity to, to get that out? No, I think we hit all the high points, but get us in about six months where we just started work. Our, our third, Lawrence Humphrey, who isn't with us today, is kicking off an IBM-wide effort on creating a set of materials around data literacy and the importance behind those who design and develop for artificial intelligence to be able to have a degree of data literacy. Or, uh, you know, we're also talking about... Uh, how do we stomp out data illiteracy? And so there's some very interesting parallels to actual literacy um, that that does play out when we start talking about this. But uh, I'll just throw that out as a teaser. C come back and ask us about that in about six months. All right. It sounds like a date. We can play the underrated, overrated game. <laughs> I know. We need to play that. We'll, we'll do that when you, when you come back. And um, 
what was I going to say? Yeah, we'll we'll test you and see what you learned. If your your feelings are still the same in six months, given given all the projects that you're working on, uh, I I lied, but I do have two more quick questions. Uh, Melinda, what do you do for fun? When when you're not in, engrossed in AI and design and all this stuff, what are you doing? Uh, I really like going to shows because I live in Austin, so I'm very spoiled with all the bands that come through. All the bands recently reuniting from the '90s that I've been going to see. <laughs> all yeah, right. probably. I'd say that's actually my biggest pastime. Uh, I like to read, you know, all those things. Well, you briefly you were in the music industry, so give me two of the bands that uh, you've seen recently or are hoping to see. Oh, awesome! Um, let me think. I did see Mike Watt recently from Minutemen. Awesome bassist. Oh. That was a really cool okay. experience. Um, and then I'm going to see a band called Omni in December. Big, mm-hmm. big fan of theirs. New album out today. New album out today. <laughs> this is an Omni <laughs> <Wow>. sponsor. <laughs> so I'm a music guy. I'm going to have to check th- this out. Thank you for that. What about you, Adam? What do you do for fun? Uh, same. I go to a bunch of shows. Uh, I travel a bunch when I, even when I'm not traveling for work, I find myself traveling. Um, my wife is an IBMer. We both like to go travel all over the world. Uh, I'm a foodie as well. And, uh, I also, uh, about two or three years ago, picked my guitar back up and started playing that again. So that, that's kind of my, my, uh, my sanity retriever on the weekends. Wow, two, three music people. I like this. This is good. Uh, what is the Austin? Be weird, stay weird. What is it? Keep Austin keep, weird. Keep Austin <laughs> weird. Keep Austin weird. All right. You guys are doing it justice. I like it. <laughs> All right, best. guys. Hey, uh, where can folks reach you? Uh, is LinkedIn? We'll put it in the show notes, but uh, any any place you'd have them go? I would go to LinkedIn or Twitter. Yeah. On, on Twitter, I'm Adam underscore Cutler. And I'm just okay. Milan at Beach on Twitter. All right. I'll, I'll put everything in the show notes there. Hey, again, thank you guys for being here. Next time we will, we'll, we'll get you back on in six months. I'll take you up on that date and uh, we'll, we'll play a few games like underrated, overrated, or we'll get a new game in there and, and we'll have some fun. So again, very informational today. I've learned a lot. I appreciate you being here. Uh, thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thank you. And for those that are listening again, you know, please let us know what you think. AlMartinTalksData at gmail.com. We monitor it. We make changes. Thank you again for listening. Greatly appreciated. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out.